I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. When I say the word infrastructure, do your eyes glaze over? Do you get that feeling you get at a party when you realize you're trapped in a conversation with the human equivalent of NyQuil? If you answered yes to either of these questions, then you've never talked about infrastructure with Mitch Landrew, White House Senior Advisor and Infrastructure Coordinator. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on February 9th, Landrew talked with passion and energy about infrastructure, the way the rest of us talked about that last episode of White Lotus. A better America means using products that are made in America. So many of you know this. Um, we basically started kind of letting folks make stuff for us, you know, and send it back to us and charging us a lot more and hollowing out small communities, especially in rural America. And we want to bring manufacturing back. Is the president succeeding? Thank you for that question. 800,000 <laughs> 800, new manufacturing jobs, 200,000 more than we had before. So there's great evidence that this idea of using products that are made in America's working. Landrew is also the former mayor of New Orleans who took down Confederate monuments and speaks openly and honestly about race. If you're still bored by the infrastructure talk, stick around for Landrew to explain why in America, racism is and continues to be its Achilles heel. When it comes to infrastructure, we're talking about $1.2 trillion in spending. Right. You've traveled the country talking to governors, mayors, local officials, city planners. What are you hearing more often about what infrastructure improvements they need most in their communities? They generally say, give me more. More what? More everything. <laughs> they have, as you know, this is a, this is a, a big piece of change. $1.2 trillion is the most that the federal government has invested in infrastructure in the last 50 years, and people would argue, in the history of the country. Uh, and it is an opportunity to completely rebuild the country as we know it with investments in roads and bridges and airports and ports, waterways, clean air and clean water. I want to stop on this for a second because this is coursing across the country in a very powerful way. Um, people have a right to clean air and to safe water, but not everybody in America has it. And this is true about whether there's um, lead, um, in the water, through pipes all across the country, whether they're brownfield, Superfund sites, Great Lakes. So there's that. And then you finally, high-speed internet. You've heard the president say this many, many times. A little girl does not need to be sitting in the back of her mama's car outside of McDonald's to have access to the internet so that she can do her homework because access to technology um, and access to knowledge levels are playing field. And then finally, um, making sure that we have or building a clean energy economy. So that's 375 new programs uh, in the bill that are getting funded. Some of the money's going to the governors. Some of the money is in competitive programs. But essentially, what we're trying to do is build a team of people, as I said just in the, in the introduction, where governors and mayors and the White House are all on the same page, essentially singing from the same song in the same playbook at the same church service, getting the money to the ground and having the projects come out. And we're now 14 months into this. We have 20,000 projects right now that have been funded in the country that are in some level of formation, and, uh, and you really kind of see it crisscrossing the country. The major challenges we have, um, workforce, everybody says to me, look, do we have enough people to do the jobs? Are the folks in the neighborhood where I live trained to do the job, to build the thing that's happening in our particular community, and that's gonna be a challenge for us? But these are all great problems to have. The biggest problem was not having the money to invest in the infrastructure that was threatening the economic growth of the nation. And the president said, as you have heard him say many times, 
if we uh, want to be strong and, and have our nation strong, you can't do that with a strong economy, and you cannot have a strong economy if you don't have strong infrastructure. And that's how you build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, providing millions of jobs to folks in America, many of which don't require a college education. And we're well on our way. Well, let me dive into the the worker portion of, of your answer, because there is a shortage of skilled workers across the country. Um, what are you doing to train people to fill these jobs? Well, let me say this. First of all, every one of these jobs requires some level of skill. For some reason, we say unskilled. But every one of these jobs requires some level of expertise, but it doesn't require a college education to actually do the job. So think about what we just said. In the rebuilding of roads and bridges and airports and ports, we've been doing that for a long time, and we understand how to train folks to do that. But if you're building a clean energy economy and you're building hydrogen hubs or you're doing carbon capture or you're laying high speed Internet or you're doing things, you know, like you're electrifying the economy by now battery manufacturing. Sometimes those skills that we have right now are not transferable. And so we are really we're going to talk to the governors tomorrow and the mayors about making sure that even though this is a national problem, it's not necessarily just a federal response. In other words, it has to be a localized response because the focus has to be different from town to town, depending on what's being done. And so there's a substantial amount of money in this bill for workforce training, but it's not enough. But we're working with the governors and the mayors and the community and technical schools and, of course, labor unions that the president has talked about quite a lot through their apprenticeships programs to actually find individuals, train them really, really well, train them specifically for what's coming our way and make sure that, as we said, with a diverse workforce, women in the workforce, people of color in the workforce, then we need the tools to get them in the workforce like childcare and transportation. Putting all of those things together will help us build the kind of workforce that's necessary to help America win the future. So I'm listening to you as a White House official, um, and part of me is thinking, well, he's supposed to say these things because this is your job. It's it White is House my job. Now, put your hat on as a, a former mayor and a former mayor of a major city, former mayor of New Orleans. Is the infrastructure uh, funding really being directed to the right needs? Well, listen, when I, when, if you're a mayor of a city and you have a federal government that doesn't believe in investing in the people of America, much less the communities of America, you have nowhere to go and nothing to do. If you're the mayor of a city and you have a governor that doesn't believe in that at all, then you have nothing to do. But when, you have, when you're the mayor of a city, little town, little community, whatever it might be, and you have a president and you have a Congress and you have governors, and then everybody's on the same page, you got a chance to rip and run. And that's pretty much the response that we've gotten from everybody in the country. Now, I'm not trying to be overtly political here. It does not matter to the president whether congressmen and women or senators voted for the bill. It, do, it does not. He has instructed me and everybody else, make sure this money gets to, down to the ground and nobody gets left behind. Um, but having said that, it is clearly true that even the people that voted no want the dough. All of them. And he said this the other night. He said this during the State of the Union speech. He said, look, I know many of you didn't vote for this bill. I'm very thankful the 14 of you that did. And it was a bipartisan in that regard. But we're not worrying about that. But it, and it is critically important that as we get this down to the ground, there is a what I call um, the execution phase, coordination, cooperation and collaboration. Now, just think about this on the federal level, state level and local level. So to effectuate that, We've had to create a model in the White House that allowed us to sing off of the same playbook. I call it horizontal and vertical integration, but singing off the same page of the same playbook actually registers a little bit more easy. But let me explain to you what that is. 
So as, as the head of the coordinating entity that's supposed to do this, we have 14 cabinet secretaries that are responsive to the request to get this money to the ground. So we have had 16 meetings with cabinet secretaries and their deputy secretaries, which we meet with almost on a daily basis, to figure out how, for example, if you're going to lay down 500,000 electrical vehicle charging stations, which we're going to do, that Department of Transportation and the Department of Energy meet all the time, coordinate. If we're laying high-speed internet, um, we want to make sure that the FCC is working with the Department of Commerce and they're working with the Department of Agriculture, so they are speaking with one voice. I've asked each one of the governors on behalf of the president in order to help coordinate them to appoint an infrastructure coordinator on the state level whose job it is to coordinate all of their agencies, and then we've talked to all of the mayors. So then you bring them into communion with each other, you make sure they're on the same page, they have the same plan, and they send those plans up to Washington that are already coordinated before we get here. Now what we need to do is make sure that they, the plans reflect the president's values. And I would like to speak to, to this a bit. When the president says we're gonna, we're gonna build a better America, it's the better part that folks should kind of pay attention to. The build part's important and how to, but it's about where, what, and who. A better America means building with equity in mind. And equity means making sure that people have been left out, people in Lowndes County, Alabama, that don't have access to indoor plumbing, tribal communities, African-American communities that have been forgotten, rural communities that are both white and African-American um, in places that don't have clean air and water. You governors have to give us a plan that makes sure that we see all of those people. Governor of Mississippi, talk to me about what's going on in Jackson. Governor in Texas, talk to me about what's going on in Houston. If you want to lay down um, a, a highway in the middle of an African-American community and dissect that community like we've done, well, maybe we're not going to do that again. So send us the plans. We'll look at the plans. When we approve the plans, then we'll actually start working together. So equity is one. The second is a better America means using products that are made in America. So many of you know this. Um, we basically started kind of letting folks make stuff for us, you know, and send it back to us and charging us a lot more and hollowing out small communities, especially in rural America. And in the South, where I'm from, you see this all over the place, where you have these towns that are just kind of, their downtown's kind of gone. We want to bring manufacturing back. Is the president succeeding? Thank you for that question. 800,000 <laughs> 800, new manufacturing jobs, 200,000 more than we had before. So there's great evidence that this idea of using products that are made in America is working. Third part, make sure that you have great labor standards. The president thinks that trickle-down economics is a myth. It doesn't work. He wants to build stuff from the ground up, which means he wants to invest in folks that are on the ground. And high labor standards are really important. And to the extent that you can use union labor, which he believes built the middle class and the middle class built America is important. And the fourth part about building a better America is actually thinking about protecting yourself from the bad things that we know are gonna happen in the climate. Now, I'm from Louisiana. I know a lot about hurricanes. I know a lot about tornadoes. I know a lot about water that can hurt you if you disrespect it. You're never gonna beat mother nature. Quit trying to work against it. Figure out how to work with her. You see this with the incredible you know, earthquakes that are just happening you know, to our neighbors. Um, where 15,000 people were killed, but we have those same things in, in the United States of America, which is why I was at the Golden Gate Bridge with Speaker Pelosi spending $600 million to actually put brake pads on the Golden Gate Bridge to sustain the, the, the dynamic challenge that you have when earthquakes hit. So the fourth thing is, is to build back with resilience and strength so that we can protect ourselves because we know of the dramatic changes we're having climate. So when people come to us, and they ask us for money, we're like, if you want to build a better, stronger country, 
that puts us in a position to win the future against any country in the world. These are the component parts, and it's an open book test. And if they have those kinds of things, you're much more likely to get a yes rather than a no on the competitive side of the $1.2 trillion, which represents about 40% of the spend. Okay, Was that so too long an given, answer given for that you? answer, I have no more questions because <laughs> yeah. uh, you hit, I had these, you answered Sorry. a lot of questions. So, but the one thing yeah. in, that, in that laundry list of, of things you mentioned, one thing you didn't mention was inflation. And last year in an interview with Bloomberg Television, you voiced concern that very high inflation, uh, the very high inflation rate would increase the overall cost of many of the projects um, that you're overseeing. With inflation ebbing, is that still a concern? Well, the, first of all, you remember last year, everything, every, every time anybody had a conversation, it had to be about inflation, and it was going in the wrong direction. Um, and they said it was the president's fault, and they forgot to talk about COVID and forgot to talk about the war in the Ukraine and the fact that the breadbasket of the world was challenged. And <clears throat> as we now look at where we are today, which is not anywhere close to being a recession, 12.1 million jobs, the unemployment rate, as low as it's been in 50 years, wage has gone really up. Economists have really kind of cooled down on a prediction that has not come true. Now, inflation continues to be a really serious problem for America, and the president is working on lowering costs every day, which is why he talks about prescription drugs, keeping the cost of insulin down, making sure that health care is available, and the other things that we can do, lowering gas prices, $1.50 a gallon lower than it was some time ago. And by the way, for the last six months, inflation has actually been going down every month. So that's the reality as it exists today. Having said that, when anything costs more, it's a problem. But the infrastructure bill is anti-inflationary because the investment is over a long period of time. And although the projects today are affected by it, as inflation ebbs over time, we're going to be able to build more stuff longer. And I'm hoping that in the future, uh, when people see how wonderful this particular thing is and that there really is no Republican or a Democratic way to fill a pothole. You just need to get the damn thing filled, right? Because it's a pain in the butt. Can I say mm -hmm. that? On you just, you just All right, did. Sorry. <laughs> if, I'm, well, I'm glad I checked before I said it. <laughs> but, but what's going to happen is it's going to grow the economy. It's, it's not going to diminish the economy. And so, yeah, you, you're concerned about it, but it, you can't build this thing out of the context of what's going on in the real world in real time, but we think over time it's gonna ease up because it's a five, seven, 10 year program. And my expectation is if we get this right, this is why it's critically important for all of us to work together on the one thing that everybody agrees on uh, in this town um, is that Congress will see the benefit of it, the American people will want more of it, and we'll continue to invest because this is the one thing that's gonna put us in a position to win the future um, uh, of the 21st century. So uh, since this conversation has gone on, you've you've gone ticked through a litany of successes, a litany of programs and policies and and philosophies uh, of, of the president that are supposed to inure to the benefit of the American people. And yet. Washington Post ABC poll this week shows that 62% of Americans feel President Biden hasn't achieved much in office. Why is that? Why, why does this poll not reflect basically anything, any of the good stuff that you just talked about? Can I, I know you're interviewing me, but can I ask you a question? Um, <laughs> are you, is, is anybody really surprised by that? Like, I'm surprised that you're surprised. 
that seems to me to be a question that is just so curious because everybody knows that it takes a long time for things, A, to take root and for the public to become aware of it for very, very simple reasons. Anybody, you got any moms and dads in here? You got kids, right? You got carpool, you got tons of stuff going on. You got COVID. We have, you know, the trauma that we've gone through in this country for the last six years will historically be one of the six most traumatic years that this country has gone through in quite a long time. We have these inflection points in history, you know, over time. Maybe there have been eight or nine or 10 of them, but the last six years will go down in history as being really the most cataclysmic that we've seen, at least in the last 50. Think about when President Biden took office. There was an active insurrection underway in the United States of America. That's not a political statement, it's a fact. That's what the hearings were about. That was actually happening while between the time he got elected and the time he took office. You just learned as much about it as you could on January 6th, and you still don't know everything about it, but you now know there was an active insurrection. This president had to put a cabinet together. What did he do? He put really one of the most capable, most diverse cabinets, by the way, which has more women in it than men for the first time in the history of the country, together. We took office at a time when COVID was ravaging the United States of America. Only 2 million people were vaccinated. Now 200 million people were vaccinated. We had an economy that was crashing, which the president stood up with the American Rescue Plan that basically helped feed America, helped make sure that firemen and EMS folks could stand up. And I will remember for you, since everybody here has a short memory, that American citizens were standing in line waiting for food starting at 3 o'clock in the morning in Manhattan when, when the, the, the food lines didn't open until 12, all right? And then after that, we were basically in a stasis in Washington, D.C., trying to get bills passed. And so when people of America were thinking about all of that stuff and all the challenges that they were going through, they could be forgiven for not really caring too much about what we did in Washington, D.C., because we talk a lot and we don't get anything done. And so now we are 14 months into this. There are 20,000 projects coming out of the ground and, you know, people go, well, I really haven't been paying that much attention to it until the president, I think you will agree with me, brought the heat the other night at the State of the Union address. Like my guy, don't like my guy. He showed up in a really big way the other night and delivered 72 minutes of hell, right, about where this country was gone and what we did with people who were sitting in the audience being a little bit less nice than he was trying to be with them as he tried to bring the country together and people over time will see this. I'm not saying that polls don't matter, but if you go back and look at the polls of all of the presidents over time, you will see that his polls and where he is on approval ratings are not horribly inconsistent with where other presidents were at the time. And you will recall, or I will recall for you, that before the elections a couple of months ago, everybody was you know, saying this guy's dead. And you know there was gonna be hell to pay after the midterms and that hasn't turned out to be true either. The one thing that has turned out to be true about Joseph R. Biden is that he has always been counted out and he has always won. That's what you know. And the only poll that really counts in terms of whether this stuff works or not is if there is another election day on that day, who they're running against, what the vision, the president's vision is, and whether or not we were actually able to hit our marks. And we have demonstrated time and time again on all the things that have mattered to this country when people were running. How many jobs did you create? What's the unemployment rate? Did you really hit your mark? How many pieces of legislation have you passed? How do you compare? When you compare him to every other president at this time in terms of actual success, not perception, but real success, he ranks at the top of the presidents that have ever served. Um, we've got six minutes left. And, and given how 
loquacious you Loqu are. <laughs> um, I know this is going to be the last question because I want to switch gears. I want to switch gears in all, in all seriousness. <laughs> do y'all want 30 second sound bites? <laughs> no, 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 no. What we do. I know, I'm totally loving this, but Good, I want to bring you. you back to when you and I um, spoke in May of 2017. I interview, interviewed you about your removal of Confederate statues uh, in, from New Orleans. You were still mayor of New Orleans. And you told me then that when confronting race, quote, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you can't go around it, you actually have to walk through it. And walking through it is hard and it's painful and it's uncomfortable, but when you come out the other side, we're all gonna be better off for it. And I thought of this when um, I was listening to President Biden during the State of the Union and he talked about the talk black parents have to have with their children. Why was that important for him to do from your perspective? Well, I know I'm sitting here as a senior advisor to the President of the United States, and I can't completely undo that cloak. Um, but my comments now are, are mine, and to the extent that I can attribute it to him, I will. But my strong feeling has always been, based on my life's experience and the things that I know and the things that I don't know, is that um, slavery is uh, this nation's original sin. And racism is and continues to be its Achilles heel. We do not know how to talk about race in America because it's too painful for us. You have prominent people now who think the idea about how to deal with race is A, to ignore it or to not let people read about it. Um, I, don't, I don't understand the theory behind you can get smarter by not reading a book. I, I can't quite get that. I just went to St. Matthias, but that confuses me a little bit. Um, but as we, you and I have talked a lot about race and the work that I did before I got here, it seems to me that we made a covenant with each other and that we have a continuous government that's supposed to reinforce that covenant. And that covenant is pretty simple, and it's an idea that actually the president talked about the other night in the State of the Union speech that what separates our country from every other country in the world is that this country is an idea. It's not really a place. It is a thing, but, but America itself is the idea, and the idea is really simple. We all come to the table of democracy as equals, and it is a fair criticism of however great this country is or has been or can be that that promise has not really been fulfilled to many people in this country. Uh, and in fact, there is a lot of evidence that there has been and continues to be a sequela from the institutional designs that have existed. And so, we jump forward um, into this. We were having a conversation and then we're yelling at each other uh, and then we still haven't gotten past it and then you continue to have the incredible deaths that we've had. I could start back before Emmett Till if you wanted to start back before the lynchings. We don't have to do that. Y'all are all smart. You can think about it. Um, but the relationship between the African-American community uh, and police departments in this country have been fraught with tremendous difficulty. The George Floyd murder uh, with Derek Chauvin is still in everybody's mind. And then of course, Tyree Nichol was murdered the other day by five or six or seven or eight police officers who were acting uh, in the wrong way with uniforms on, but they murdered him. Um, and I had the um, honor of representing the president along with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the vice president at Tyree Nichols' funeral. Every white person in America should be able to understand that when you look in a mother's eyes, whether she be white or black or Hispanic or uh, or Asian, and that mother has had to watch her son get stomped to death, 
you have to find some level of communion in that. And when you start talking about, well, the police are not the police, well, you have to start saying, well, not in America. That shouldn't happen here. And we shouldn't be having this conversation over and over again. So the president did address this the other day in the State of the Union speech. And the truth of the matter is I have never been more proud and more honored to serve him because he said two reasons. We obviously love and care and think a lot about men and women who put their lives on the line every day and might not come home. As a mayor, I actually had to go to the funeral of a police officer who was shot in the head uh, and, and sit with his wife. So that's a painful experience. But it is also true that police officers who, who act the wrong way, who do the wrong thing, who are act, acting as police officers do, should be removed because that is a crime too. And he spoke directly to that, that we can have justice and we can have peace. But you can't have justice and peace if the community does not trust police officers. So he spoke to that issue. But he said something that no president's ever said, much less from the well of the people's house, is that a lot of white people don't understand that African-American community members have to have something called the talk. Now, I got five kids. I've never had to have the conversation with them. It's usually like, you better get your butt in the house before 12 o'clock, or I'm going to know where you are, and I'm going to come get you. And if you're going to be late, call me. That's the extent of my talk. But if you're an African-American parent in this country, the talk that you have to have with your teenage son is that, hey, look, be careful. But if you get pulled over by the police officers, you have to not make any moves. You have to put your hands on the wheel or you have to put your hands on the dashboard. Do not, do not be disrespectful. Now, I want you to think about, as a white person, what that would feel like if you had to talk to your kid and the terror that you have. And the president actually spoke to that. And that's the first time that the nation has actually, most of the nation that is not African-American, has heard somebody, much less a white man who happened to be the president, speak to that issue. And I think he did that because he wanted to say, look, We've got to put ourselves in each other's shoes. That as Americans, we actually have to love each other and care for each other. And unless and until we do, we're not going to have that level of confidence with each other. And this is part of being who we are as America. This is what he's talking about when he says restore the soul of the nation, which is one of the most important reasons why he ran. And one of the things he wants to continue to do, as he said to us, let him finish his work. Mitch Landrieu. Former mayor of New Orleans, White House senior advisor and infrastructure coordinator, thank you. You're welcome. For joining thank you. Us. Thank you all for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.